Welcome to Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. This is a special Earth Day edition. Coming up, the red roots of the green movement, beginning with Karl Marx to Al Gore to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal. The origins of Earth Day. It's never been about protecting the Earth. It's always been an assault on humankind. Also, how the left has dismantled the Earth's real temperature record. And how carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, but instead a necessity for life. All these stories coming up on this special Earth Day edition of Hidden Headlines. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Brian Sussman here. By the way, I need to begin with a little bit about my background for those of you who are new to this podcast. Some of you, of course, know me for my lengthy radio career. Others of you know me, perhaps, by my books, Climate Gate and Eco-Tyranny, in which case you know that back in the day I was a television meteorologist. So my background, for those of you just new to this podcast, I went to college at the University of Missouri. There I studied uh, journalism, broadcasting, got out of school, started working first in radio and then in television. While I was in television, I just by chance happened to fill in for the weather guy one day because he was not able to come to work and they were desperate to find somebody to stand in front of the maps. So I said, hey, I'll do it. And I did it and I fell in love with it. And in no time flat, I became the station's main weather guy. At that point in time, I went to school to learn all I could about meteorology and eventually got my degree. So it started with broadcasting and journalism and then morphed into a television weather career, which lasted a long time. I was on Channel 5 in San Francisco for many years. And for quite a few years, I was on the CBS Morning News and CBS This Morning, which were, of course, nationally broadcast from New York. I started having problems in the newsroom at Channel 5 in San Francisco, which was a CBS-owned station, when I started realizing that global warming was a hoax. I was doing my research, doing my diligence, talking to a lot of experts, and I just came to believe this was in the 90s. I was an early adapter, so to speak, that the whole thing was riddled with certainly errors and maybe even fraud to the point where it was a pseudoscientific hoax. And I'll never forget, I had an argument with our executive producer. The executive producer was upset because I wasn't going to be towing the line on global warming in this story that they wanted me to do. And he pulled me aside in the newsroom. Our argument began to get a bit heated. And he pulled me aside in the newsroom and said, Brian, you know what your problem is? You don't know what facts to leave out. And at that point in time, I knew my days in the TV news business were numbered. Uh, that was a blow to the stomach. You know, I was a trained journalist that was taught at the University of Missouri to, to show both sides of an argument, not to leave facts out so that one could make a, a propaganda piece out of the news. So that was a time at which I knew that I wasn't going to be lasting too much longer in TV news. I couldn't stomach it. And I hoped that maybe someday I could get a radio show. And of course, I did. The radio show and the radio biz for me became very successful. And, 
And now we've got the podcast, Hidden Headlines, which is really taking off. So this is an opportunity to present the facts that you're not going to hear from the elite mainstream establishment media. So this is the Earth Day edition. I, I really want to talk about this holiday. It becomes a national holiday. There'll be festivities all over the country. School children are taking part. It's an indoctrination into something that's very, very, if I may use the word, evil. So I'm going to do a lot of talking here, and hopefully you're going to do some listening, maybe even take some notes. But I can tell you that much of which I'm going to be speaking on is found in my books, Climate Gate, A Veteran Meteorologist Exposes the Global Warming Scam. That came out in 2010. And then the follow-up book, which came out in 2012, Eco-Tyranny, How the Left's Green Agenda Will Dismantle America. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about can be found in those books. But I'll be adding some additional information along the way, which will make this Hidden Headlines podcast unique. Let me begin with something that I share in the foreword to Eco-Tyranny. It's a statement made by one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, Samuel Adams. See, nowadays you mention Samuel Adams, people, they, they think of the beer. Oh, the beard guy. Isn't that amazing? No, he was, he was a tremendous patriot and a signer to the Declaration of Independence. And keep in mind, the, the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, when they put their names on that document, suddenly they were wanted men. They and their families were wanted. And many of them, well, a few of them perished in the process. And, and some were thrown in prison. And many of them lost everything for signing that document. It's all true. But here's what Samuel Adams said. And, and I think these, these are such words of wisdom that, oh, if we could only teach these in our schools today. No people will tamely surrender their liberties, nor can any be easily subdued when knowledge is diffused and virtue is preserved. On the contrary, when people are universally ignorant and debauched in their manners, they will sink under their own weight without the aid of foreign invaders. You know what's happening here with this global warming climate change debate? People are becoming, they're so universally ignorant of science that they're lapping up everything they hear and in the process are willing to give up their liberties in the name of fighting climate change. It's like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, we'll have blood on our hands. Now, I'm not a cursing man, but I almost cursed just then. I don't cuss. I, that's just not a part of my thing. I almost found myself saying bull bleep. It's, that is absolutely incredible. And this is what one of the signers of the, of the Declaration of Independence told us, Samuel Adams. AOC wants us to surrender our liberties in the name of climate change. Okay, well, let's, let's start with where all of this began, shall we? Uh, pollution has never been Earth's most troubling foe. Marxism has. I'll just say it like it is. Marxists have always seized upon pollution, both real and imagined, as an effective weapon in their unrelenting war on freedom. Now I'll prove my point, now that I have your attention. 
Karl Marx founded a philosophy that has inspired dictators. It has inspired demagogues. It commenced with the Russian Revolution in 1917 and continues to the present in different forms. His tyrannical ideology, eco-tyranny, his tyrannical ideology, that's why I use the the name of the book is eco-tyranny. This ideology has been responsible for the documented deaths of more than 110 million people around the world. Hundreds millions more have been forced to live in oppressed societies, void of the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Remember those three things. Yet despite the suffering that Marxism has unleashed on this planet, we are continually lectured. Oh, by politicians, government bureaucrats, professors, environmental groups, movie stars, that the world's foremost enemy is pollution, specifically carbon dioxide nowadays, greenhouse gas emissions, that gas-guzzling car or truck you drive. And our greatest challenge, they insist, is curtailing such discharges and restoring the global environment. Because if we don't, well, like AOC said, we'll have blood on our hands. The Earth's ecosystem will die. Folks, this is all a lie, as I will explain. There is no planetary emergency. It's a concocted calamity churned out by Marx himself and his modern-day devotees. And it's what I call the green agenda. I was the first to use that term. So, you know, just to be straight, is there pollution? Of course there is. Can it be cleaned up? You betcha. And we have done a remarkable job of doing so in the United States of America. But to declare that there's this dire global equal emergency, especially one fueled by carbon dioxide, you know, this is an anti-capitalist plot that's been playing out for nearly 150 years, as I will explain. Let me go back in time. Let me take you to 1842, Karl Marx, Karl Marx. Karl Marx, by the way, his initial goal when he started this group called the Young Hegelians, well, actually, he joined a group called the Young Hegelians. The goal of that group was to liquidate Christianity. Well, you know, those Christians, they're so rigid in their ways, and they believe in God, and they knew that, you know, there was no such thing as God. So liquidate Christianity. That was his original goal. Then, of course, it was to get rid of capitalism. So 1842, Karl Marx meets this guy named Frederick Engels. They are, they are brothers from another mother. Uh, they began developing a propaganda campaign that altered the history of the world. And they held parallel views on all sorts of things, uh, even the abolition of a supreme being. And they were convinced that science was the ultimate path to godlike superiority. And they held that, quote, if science can get to know all there is to know about matter, atoms, molecules, etc., then we will know all there is to know about everything. That's Karl Marx. Now, something else Marx put together with Engels, it was called the laws of materialism. The three laws of materialism. The, law, the three laws of materialism can be boiled down to this. I'll, I'll summarize it. These laws basically confirm an elite status within the human race. So when you, when you hear liberals speak and they just they act as if they know more than, for example, you do, 
and they dismiss your beliefs as being lowly, and, and they call you names because they don't like the way you think, and they just act er very arrogant towards you. I mean, when you look at the current crop of politicians right now, uh, we finally find out, you know, how much Bernie Sanders has. Here's a socialist. He's worth a couple million bucks. How much do you need, Bernie? You've got a big salary. That should be plenty. You're going to get a great pension when it's all said and done. Why don't you take your assets and give them to, give them to charity? This Beta O'Rourke character, another socialist, we found out that in the last three years total, according to his tax records, he gave away $1,200 in 17, $900 in 16, $900 to charity in 2015. These are absolute hypocrites. Elizabeth Warren is another one. She has, who knows how, well, her net worth is also in the millions. How much do you need? Give it away. Walk the talk. But that's not how they operate because they're the special people. They're the ones who know all. So these laws of materialism, these laws of matter, I've summed it up this way, and this is very important because this was, this was at the very foundation of everything Marx believes and his followers to this day. So they would tell you that committed Marxists are convinced that phenomena such as love, passion, and value, and feelings aren't real because they're not composed of matter. They're just feelings. There's no atoms and molecules. Even consciousness, and especially faith in God, are simply the result of material interactions within the human mind. You're imagining God. In addition, Marxists contend that some people are randomly spit out of their mother's womb with a better brain than the rest. Those with the better brains have a Darwinian authority to rule over those with lesser brains lest those with the deficient brains destroy the planet and kill one another. So we're the ones with the deficient brains. We're the ones who are going to destroy the planet and kill one another. Thus, the liberal, the socialist, the communist, believes in the need for a heavy-handed form of government loaded with burdensome regulations, because otherwise, left to our own devices, we're going to be dangerous. This is the perfect excuse for socialism, communism, or fascism. So Marxists believe they have the power to define all societal morality and rules and laws subject to their goals. Hence, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To them, to the Marxists, to the socialists, th this is absurd. It's absurd. Because an imaginary God cannot declare rights. Marxism demands that so-called rights be issued not by God, but by the government in the form of laws. And just as a law can be issued by the government, so shall it be taken away by the government if deemed necessary. That's why these inalienable rights are so critical. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. These can't be taken away by the government because they're given to you by God. Do you understand what I'm saying? So to people like Karl Marx, life, liberty, all of these things, <laughs> these, are, these are preposterous. The life of an individual is not unique. It's just a fragment of an ever-multiplying collective mass, the result of random cosmic Darwinian accidents. 
Likewise, liberty, it's an unattainable sentiment. Because left to our own devices, you know, they say um, we're incapable of coexistence without formidable government control and regulation. And the pursuit of happiness, oh my gosh, Marx was aware of the origins of this key phrase. It was penned in direct reference to the words of English philosopher John Locke, who in 1690, in an essay entitled Concerning Human Understanding, wrote, The necessity of pursuing happiness is the foundation of liberty. That's the pursuit of happiness. And Marx loathed that, absolutely loathed that. So Marx gets together with Engels, and they put together the Communist Manifesto. And the goal of their new world order in this Communist Manifesto is, quote, the theory of the communist may be summed up in this, in this single sentence, the abolition of private property. The abolition of private property. That's the goal of communism. That's the goal of socialism. They don't want you to own property. And property is akin to happiness. And I'm not just talking about the property that you own. Like your car, your house, the clothes on your back, your stuff. I'm talking about the, the property between your ears. They want to control that as well. So let me continue here. Marx and the environment. Marx perceived that the environment was an effective... I'm talking about Karl Marx here, folks. Not Al Gore, Karl Marx. Way back when, Marx perceived that the environment was an effective apparatus to justify his hatred of capitalism and liberty. Now, he didn't use the word environment. That, that, came, that was invented or coined, if you will, by one of his disciples, as I'll explain. He used the word nature. But in many ways, Karl Marx was the premier environmentalist, and he was the founding father of this green agenda. So in 1862, a colleague of Marx, uh, a German chemist, Justus von Liebig, published an updated version of an otherwise boring book that he wrote 22 years earlier. It's entitled Organic Chemistry and Its Application to Agriculture and Physiology. So in this new edition, he was creating an environmental argument to attack capitalism. An environmental argument to attack capitalism. Now, it's kind of hilarious. <laughs> the, the environmental argument had to do with bird droppings or guano, but nonetheless, he was out to show that the environment needed to be protected and that capitalism was destroying the environment. Now, Marx, like von Liebig, was convinced natural resources could in no way, shape, or, or form ever belong to man. Natural resources could only be utilized by society if necessary for the absolute common good. See, they didn't want you to own your property because what you might do on that piece of land, well, might be for profit. Gee, there are some law, there are some trees in the back. Maybe it could log those trees and, and make some money selling lumber. You can't do that because you're not supposed to own the land. That land belongs to the collective. Oh, but I've got some beautiful farmland here. You know, I could make a nice living for my family by raising corn or soybeans or you name the crop. No, you can't do that. That's not your land. You use that to make a profit for yourself. This is, this is the mindset of the, of the communist and the socialist. So like Liebig, Marx also believed that eventually city dwellers, 
See, now we're going to have all these people in these cities. And what's going to happen with these city dwellers, they'll be able to purchase more food at a lesser cost because people are going to create markets. And the markets are going to want to keep their, their costs low so they can make a profit off of the food. And there's going to be competition. I mean, Marx figured all this out. He thought, we're going to have these cities. There are going to be all these people. And there are going to be mechanisms, delivery systems put in place for them to have food. And they're actually going to get that food at a rather low cost. We can't have that because these people will then have larger families. This is what Karl Marx thought. And he said, larger families require bigger houses. And the bigger houses will, will, will require more materials. And you'll have more workers being exploited to make the houses. And there'll be an urban, urban population boom. And there'll, there'll be more horses for transportation. And more subsequent animal waste, animal dung, and the human stuff too. And it'll have to be removed the cities and hauled to the dump. And more people will be exploited. And there will be laborers who are not being paid a fair wage. And there'll be too many people. See, Marx perceived all of this as nothing more than a vicious cycle created and perpetuated by a lust for profit. He succinctly described the process of this modern system of agriculture, stating, quote, the increased exploitation of natural wealth by the mere increase in the tension of labor power, science and technology, will give capital a power of expansion. So he saw this as a cycle that had to be stopped. So now he writes his premier work. It's called Das Kapital. It was a a, a long piece that just railed against capitalism. And in it, I'm going to share a portion of this with you right now. He sounds like a modern-day environmental activist. Ready for this? Karl Marx, Das Kapital. All progress in capitalistic agriculture is a process, is is a progress in the art, not only of robbing the laborer, but of robbing the soil. All progress in increasing the fertility of the soil for a given time is a progress towards ruining the lasting sources of that fertility. The more a country starts developing on the foundation of modern industry, like the United States, for example, the more rapid is this process of destruction. He was going after the United States right off the bat because of capitalism, and he saw capitalism as the ruination of the planet. And the United States would be the poster child. Now, folks, that's some, that sounds like something you would hear Bernie Sanders say. That sounds like something that AOA, AOC would say. The more a country starts developing, excuse me, the more a country starts its development on the foundation of modern industry, like the United States, for example, the more rapid is this process of destruction. And these followers of Marx today have not changed. They continue to perceive capitalism as unjust the use of natural resources for profit as immoral. That includes fishing. That includes uh, raising livestock for food. That includes raising crops in your backyard and selling them at the, uh, at the farmer's market. They don't like any of it. Now, there are three additional founders that you need to hear about, and then we'll get to Earth Day. The three additional founders of the Green Agenda... Uh, The first is Sir Edwin Ray Lancaster. He was a zoologist at University College in London. He was a frequent guest at Marx household. Good time buddy of Karl Marx. Lancaster was the most eco-socialist thinker of his time. 
He wrote powerful paper, uh, papers on species extinction due to human causes. His most popular screed was entitled Nature and Man, in which he described humans as the insurgent sons of nature. The insurgent sons of nature. Now, Lancaster had a star pupil named Arthur Tainsley. He was the guy who coined the term ecosystem. So you have Marx, then you have Lancaster, then you have Tainsley. Tainsley came up with the term ecosystem. Tainsley was deeply concerned with, quote, the destructive human activities of the modern world. He said ecology must be applied to conditions brought by human activity. So he had a young protege named Charles Elton who worked with him to further develop the ecosystem concept. And the idea is that they would, they would use this, this newfangled term ecology and ecosystems as a tool, as a wedge to go after capitalism, supposedly in the name of science. So you go from Karl Marx to Charles Elton. Three degrees of separation bring us to the modern radical environmental movement that includes Al Gore, and we'll get to Al shortly as well. Now let me fast forward to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. You mentioned that name to any U.S. citizen formerly from the Soviet Union, and the instant response will be visceral. Lenin was the Marx-honoring communist who overthrew Russia. Lenin engrossed himself in the, wor in the works of Mar Marx. Um, he was a writer. He was a theorist. And, of course, he and a small band of cohorts, co cohorts staged a stunning coup, the Russian Revolution. Within the first year as party chairman, 1918, he issued a mandate entitled Decree on Land. It's quite a read. He declares all forests, all waters, all minerals to be property of the state. I mean, this is just like Karl Marx, just like Karl Marx. And you must understand, folks, well, I'll continue. Um, so as the locals, he, he takes over in 1918, and locals begin to clear portions of the forest for firewood, for construction material, etc. He comes out with the, the decree on forests, and suddenly the forests are off limits. Suddenly farming is under state control. Suddenly, hunting is under state control. Animal rights. He was all, Lenin was all about the animal rights. Lenin was the environmentalist environmentalist before we even heard of an environmentalist on planet Earth. And because of this, because of this, he is heralded as a hero by those on the left who ply them a, with a glass of wine or two or give him a joint or whatever they do, um, and suddenly they start talking straight with you, they'll tell you what a great environmentalist Lenin was. You have to understand, friends, the green agenda from, from guano, the first crisis, to global warming is not about celebrating the beauty of our planet. It's not. It's an assault on mankind. It's an agenda that has no regard for your needs, your lifestyle, your dreams, your desires, or your feelings. And environmental activists are dogmatic absolutely dogmatic. They are hell-bent on transforming society into a colossal, highly regulated, redistributive commune void of inalienable rights. The primary goal of their agenda is not a pristine environment. 
It's about gaining absolute control over your life. That's what they want to do. That's what they're really, really good at. Let's get to Earth Day. Because it has to do with Vladimir Lenin. A series of ecological episodes uh, took place back in the late 60s. And some of you were around then. You will remember these very, very well. Uh, there was the New York City garbage collector strike of 1968. It was hailed as the greatest ecological da disaster of our time. It was all over the news. Piles of garbage all over New York City because of this strike. So, in fact, uh, in fact uh, the New York Times called it pollution on parade. Pollution on parade. Then in January of the following year, a Union Oil drilling platform six miles off the coast of Santa Barbara sprang a leak, allowing hundreds of thousands of gallons of crude to seep into the Pacific and wash ashore. Again, media hysteria. So now you've got garbage. Now you've got oil. And the nation's first outspoken congressional environmentalist, uh, Wisconsin Senator Gaylord Nelson, flies immediately out to California to see the action for himself. And he goes on TV saying something needs to be done to wake America up. Several months later, 1969, another event etched into the American psyche. The Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> becomes a, a symbol of a planet despair. I'm sorry I'm laughing, but this is kind of a joke. The, the entire river was consumed in flames and burned for hours. That's what the uh, accepted story is. <laughs> but the truth is that the fire only burned for 30 minutes. No conclusive evidence of its cause has ever been determined. But Again, the story is there was all this pollution on the river and it just spontaneously ignited and it burned for hours. No, it was, it was a fire that lasted less than a half hour and it was actually pretty small and probably some floating debris somehow ignited beneath a train trestle and the thing was extinguished so quickly that a photographer, they, there was not one picture of this. Nobody got a picture of this. The pictures they used was from a fire that occurred on the river back in 1952. That's the hidden headline. Such a joke. I mean, it, the media was even in it back then. They couldn't get a photograph of the Cuyahoga on fire because now everybody's into pollution and protecting the planet. So they found a, a picture from 1952 that they ran. Gosh. So you've got all this going on. And then, of course, Woodstock hits and the hippie movement hits in 1969. And the young people want to have something to rally around. And my God, it was it was Earth. And seizing the Woodstock moment, Senator Nelson met with a guy at Stanford named Professor Ehrlich, Paul Ehrlich, because Paul had just written a book, just the most bogus. Another one of these pseudoscientific frauds, Population Bomb. He said the population was overflowing. There wasn't going to be room for all the people. This is in 69. So Senator Nelson gets with Ehrlich, who's now like this rock star amongst the hippies. They get together with a leftist named Dennis Hayes. Dennis was the former student body president at Stanford who left the country because he just had to get out of the United States. He couldn't take it anymore. So now he comes back to meet with these guys. And they thought, you know what we need to do? We need to put together a teach-in. That's it. We're going to do a teach-in. We're going to instruct teachers all across America. If you're for the earth, man, we're just going to have a teach-in. And you could sit on the floor cross-legged and rap about the environment. And they said, it'll be a national teach-in. And you know what? It's going to be a national environmental teach-in. 
and we'll do it sometime in the spring of, of 1970. So they put together the first Earth Day, 1970, and they chose April 22nd because April 22nd is the date of Lenin's birth. And on April 22nd, 1970, that murderous communist would have been 100 years old. Selecting that date to quote-unquote celebrate Earth Day was clearly no coincidence. So now enter Al Gore. That's why I say Earth Day, folks, it's a communist holiday. Now let's enter Al Gore. Al Gore spent years trying to find his place in life. Of course, his dad, Gore Sr., was a senator. Had some interesting ties to a guy who was a communist named Armin Hammer. After years of trying to find his place in life, including subpar work as a Harvard undergrad. Oh, his grades were terrible, by the way. And then following a brief stint as an Army journalist, he received an early release and a miserable time at Vanderbilt University School of Religion, where he flunked out. And finally, an attempt to become a lawyer at Vanderbilt School of Law, he didn't finish. Al Gore Jr., the hero of the left, Mr. Global Warming himself. Did you hear what I just said? I mean, prior to becoming elected as a pro-life Democrat to Congress in 1976, that's right, a pro-life Democrat. Democrat from Tennessee in 1976, I'll say it again, elected as a pro-life Democrat in 1976, he then became a pro-choice senator in 1984. The guy was a miserable failure before that and everything he tried. But he began to navigate up the political ranks and his old, his dad's old chum Arm and Hammer began to uh, provide favors Oh, they started making all the maximum legal donations to Al's campaigns. Al was often seen dining with Hammer. And uh, Gore would use Hammer's luxurious Boeing 727 for private journeys and jaunts. My goodness. Al Gore, Arm and Hammer. And then in 1987, Arm and Hammer received a humanitarian award in Moscow. This is a humanitarian ward in Moscow. It was a communist country. The wall hadn't fallen down yet. This is 1987. And who goes with him on the visit? Well, Al Gore. Al Gore. Rock star Senator Al Jr. was there with Hammer. Even delivered a speech to the communists. So Gore's Moscow trip actually turned out to be a resume answer because after being sworn in as Bill Clinton's vice president in January of 1993, Gore was made the point man for Russian relations. And he was also becoming the jolly green giant. So Gore was immediately cut loose to act as a quasi-ambassador from the United Nations to, uh, to help with Russia relations and also implement goals set out in an agenda called 21, Agenda 21, which involved sustainable development. Sustainable development, which is just another word for the green agenda. In fact, I'll read a little bit from Al Gore's sustainable development document entitled A New Consensus for the Prosperity, Opportunity, and a Healthy Environment for the Future. We believe economic growth, environmental protection, and social equity are linked Economic growth, environmental protect, protection, and social equity. Did anybody ask you about this? Do you believe that economic growth, environmental protection, and social equity are linked? I don't. 
Do you believe the United States should, quote, have policies and programs that contribute to stabilizing global human population? I don't. Do you believe this? Even in the face of scientific uncertainty, I'm reading from the document. Even in the face of scientific uncertainty, society should take reasonable actions to avert risks where the potential harm to human health or the environment is thought to be serious or irreparable. Listen to this, my friends. Even in the face of scientific uncertainty, so these people don't care about science. They don't care about the facts. It's like the producer who talked to me at Channel 5 in San Francisco. It's like he said, Brian, you don't know what facts to leave out. And then finally, from this document, the council should not debate the science of global warming, but should instead focus on the implementation of national and local greenhouse gas reduction policies, activities, and adaptations in the U.S. economy and society that maximize environmental and social benefits and are consistent with U.S. international agreements. So, folks, this is why Al Gore says... This is why Al Gore was never debated anybody, because his counsel determined that we should not debate the science of global warming. They don't want to debate it. That's why I got the URL debatemealgore.com. Al Gore, his new consensus also stated, the federal government should play a more active role in building consensus on difficult issues. In other words, propaganda. Propaganda. Can I tell you this, folks? Again, Just going back to that that meteorology degree I have, science is not conducted on the basis of consensus. It never has been. It never should be. And in this case, building consensus implies serious arm twisting at the least. And such methodology leads to reckless decisions based on the input of junk science and emotion and desires for devious agendas. We need to be skeptical in science. We need to have honest debates. We need to look at the facts. And therein lies the problem. Because Al Gore and others don't want you to see the facts. Now, I'm 40 minutes into this podcast. Let me just give you a few little factoids here that I hope are going to be beneficial. Up until 1990, it was generally accepted by all corners of the scientific community that over the past 1,000 years, the temperature record of the Earth illustrated a distinct warming period between AD 900 and AD 1300, 400 years. Average temperature on Earth was likely 2 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than today. It's called the medieval warm period. And up until 1990, these same scientists, again, it was universal, all agreed that from A.D. 1350 to A.D. 1800, there was a global cooldown, reversing the warmth of the medieval warm period, and temperatures fell about two degrees. That period is known as the Little Ice Age. Following the Little Ice Age, temperatures stabilized for 50 years. Then between 1850 and 1940, the temperature increased one degree. And from 1940 to 1970, the Earth cooled about 0.2 degrees. And this was followed by a, war, a, mi- a, a minor warming of 0.34 degrees between 1970 and 1998. So that means since 19, excuse me, since 1850, there's been an increase in temperature of 1.14 degrees. 
and are you ready for this? Every time I bring out this statistic, I've been called all sorts of names for this. 88% of this warming occurred before 1940. Again, since 1850, the temperature of the planet has risen 1.14 degrees. 0.7 degrees Celsius. It has. 88% of this warming occurred before 1940. These facts are indisputable. These facts are indisputable, period. But oh my gosh, uh, these facts get in the way of an agenda, don't they? These facts get in the way of an agenda. So the bottom line is, how do we win the argument that this is not the hottest weather ever? Well, we do it with the facts. We do it with the facts. Can I give you a couple facts really quick here on Hidden Headlines? In the 1930s, 22 of the now 50 states recorded their highest temperatures ever during the 1930s. 110 degrees, Millsboro, Delaware, July 21. 1930, um, 118 degrees at Keokuk, Iowa, July 20th, 1942. Let me give you uh, Steele, North Dakota, 121 degrees, July 6th, 1936. But there have been changes since then, and the record has been skewed. I should mention this. Most of the world's thermometers have only been installed since the 1980s, including more than 1,000 in the United States. 400 placed after 1998. So these have been placed in urban areas. They've been placed at airports. They've been placed in areas that are artificially warm. So that skews the temperature. Additionally, we've seen a situation where reporting stations around the world have been omitted from the record, thanks to a guy named James Hansen, who used to be director of the Goddard Institute for Space Studies, a division of NASA. So thermometers in higher latitudes were removed temperatures from older records were corrected downward to give the impression of a, of a warming trend. This, this was all done by your federal government under the Clinton years and under the Obama years. The temperature record was not properly compensated for urban growth and land use changes, which can produce localized heating. Data from 35 sites in Canada is now registered as opposed to 600 which were used back in the 70s. Reporting stations in the Andes Mountains and Bolivia have been omitted from the record. Only 25% of Russia's reporting stations are included in global temperature calculations. During the Clinton years and the Obama years, the records were bastardized. They were just absolutely screwed up. So we've got global warming. Now let me move on from that to this. CO2. Uh, CO2 is, is not a pollutant. It's, it's one of the gases in our atmosphere necessary for life. And by the way, there's just a tiny bit of CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, the primary gas, nitrogen and oxygen, account for 78% and 21% uh, respectively. CO2 is 0.038%. That's it. In fact, I love this. This is from Paige. Um, this, is, this is actually something I write about in ClimateGate. But I take it from Michael Crichton in his must-read eco-thriller, State of Fear. He's likening the gases of the Earth's atmosphere to a football field. The goal line to the 78-yard line contains nothing but nitrogen. Okay, you with me? Goal line to 78-yard line, nitrogen. Oxygen fills the next 21 yards. 
taking us to the 99-yard line. The final yard, except for four inches, is argon, a wonderfully mysterious inert gas useful for putting out electrical fires. Three of the remaining four inches are crammed with a variety of minor but essential gases. The last inch, the last inch is carbon dioxide. It's the equivalent of one inch out of a 100-yard football field. That's it. And the most important point, how much of that last inch is contributed by human activities like driving cars? The equivalent of a line as thin as a quarter standing on its edge. Life is dependent on carbon dioxide. And by the way, carbon dioxide like water, there's a cycle. There's a carbon cycle. So when a major volcano erupts on the Pacific Rim, carbon dioxide is expelled. One volcano could do more than all the cars on the planet for years. Carbon cycle. When a lightning-induced forest fire rages in the Rockies, carbon dioxide is released. When an Indonesian peat bog eternally smolders, large amounts of long-stored CO2 are naturally released into the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is banked in weathering rocks, decaying coral, decomposing plants. It's constantly meandering through this cycle. It's no different with the carbon uh, that's cached in fossil fuels. Upon consumption, it's released in the atmosphere, where it's temporarily held and finally absorbed by, by a variety of repositories or sinks. Carbon dioxide is perfectly natural. And by the way, the Earth's atmosphere can actually handle more, and that more will benefit, will benefit life. So now you know here on Hidden Headlines. Phew, we got it all in. The Earth Day edition. I hope you were able to get some good factoids out of this that you will be able to use to defend your position with the truth. By the way, my books, Climategate, a veteran meteorologist exposes the global warming scam and Eco-Tyranny, how the left's green agenda will dismantle America. Those are still available at Amazon.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Brian Sussman Show. Twitter, Brian underscore Sussman. YouTube, just look for Brian Sussman. And then, of course, my website, briansussman.com. I do have a blog where some of the information from today can be found. Also, regular updates throughout the week on stories that involve faith, family, and freedom. Thank you for joining me, my friends. If you like what you heard today, hey, share it. I make no money off these podcasts. I do it from the bottom of my heart because I'm passionate and I really feel there's a voice that I'm presenting that hopefully is useful to people just like you. Until next week, Brian Sussman signing off.